0: From WBEZ Chicago, this is When Magic Happens. I'm Cheryl Jackson. We are a constituency, a power base, and we are no longer hiding in the shadows.
1: So I will continue to speak up because representation matters. I will continue to speak up for little kids who wonder who's speaking up for them.
0: Unless you are saying I'm racist, white supremacist, and I'm bigoted, Stop talking about wokeness. And you can't tell me that I'm wrong because I'm from the very movement where this came about. Don't let a fascist tell you what being woke means. Last week, I told y'all black women been out here saving everybody and their mama and oftentimes without recognition and representation. Jennifer Taylor and I also name-dropped a couple of times an icon who has been so integral to our democratic process, not only by advocating voters' rights in Georgia with her own organization, Fair Fight, not only for her fierce fight against gerrymandering, but for how her tireless work on the ground has shifted the history of Georgia and our nation. This name could only be the one and only Stacey Abrams. She ran for governor of Georgia in 2018, which would have made her the first African-American woman governor in the entirety of U.S. history. However, she lost a close election to GOP opponent Brian Kemp. She ran once more in 2022, running unopposed in the Democratic Party, but conceded in that race as well. But one thing about Stacey Abrams, she gives big can't-stop, won't-stop energy. And at the end of her last race, she said she'll never stop doing everything in her power to make sure the people of Georgia have a voice. I could go on and on about the incredible accomplishments of this amazing Black woman. And you know what's better than talking about her? It's talking with her directly. And that's exactly what we at When Magic Happens did. In an exclusive interview for our series on Black women saving democracy, here's my conversation with leader Stacey Abrams.
1: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I grew up the daughter of not one but two civil rights activists. My parents were engaged in the movement as teenagers. My father was arrested when he was 14, registering Black people to vote in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, My mom was doing similar work on the other side of town. And they both came at it with a very basic recognition that their citizenship demanded more, that they were entitled to the full range of options and opportunities. My mom was the first one in her family to finish high school. My dad was the first man in his family to go to college. But what stuck with me when I was growing up was the fact that my grandfather was conscripted into both World War II and the Korean War, but was never permitted to vote when he would come home. And so he could be oh. sent abroad to fight for democracy, for democratic values, for the ideals of a nation that allowed the state of Mississippi to deny his full humanity. And that persisted oh. until the 1960s. My father, my grandfather was 40 before he was able to cast a ballot. And so for me that the, the Defense of democracy is very selfish. It is how I live the legacy of my family. It's how I ensure the access of my nieces and nephews. It is how we have our voices included and how we shape the world around us. When you live in a democracy, it is only real if you can speak. It doesn't guarantee that you will be heard. It doesn't guarantee that the work you demand right. will be realized, but the point of entry cannot be denied. And so all of the work that I do, in fact, not just in democracy protection directly, but across the board in the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, the civic sector, it is all driven by this very fundamental belief that I have the right to be a part of the process. And my responsibility is to ensure access.
0: Right, right. It's it's powerful that you would have both parents um, be on the ground floor of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, So so that explains why, uh, you know, your role in democracy and government and politics, uh, it's flowing in your blood, in your DNA. Um, well, you have both parents, your, your father and your mother involved in that. But today, um, women, black women are most often spoken about or um, referred to as being at the forefront of most social and political movements. I'd love to hear your opinion about that, why that is, why black women are uh, most often at the forefront of most social and
1: political movements. We are most often at the forefront because we are most often the targets of the consequences of disengagement, of attack, of weaponization. If you think about most of the social ills that we encounter in this country, we encounter worldwide, and I will expand this to a diasporic conversation, Black women in particular are called upon to bear the brunt of those consequences. When you see the diminution of economic access, when you hear attacks on communities, typically Black women are either responsible for solving the problem or they are the lead story in what the problem causes. Black women are more likely to die in childbirth and least likely to have access to health care. Uh, we just saw the, the tragic story of the Olympic athlete who died. So tragic. And, and again, these are consequences that Black women face. And that is not to deny the effect of this m- malaise on Black men or other communities of color. But for Black women, we have been in this position For so long, we were singularly targeted during uh, slavery, and we were singularly targeted in recent movements as exemplars of what should not be allowed and who should be harmed. And so I say all that to say there are two reactions you can have, or actually three. You can give in, you can fight back, or you can be complicit. And Black women have chosen to fight back. And that fight is righteous in that it is often a fight that says not only will we serve ourselves, but our intention is to serve the larger society because we know that when pieces break, we are the ones who are impaled by the falling pieces. We are the ones who feel the consequences. That said, I I always want us to be very careful about the savior language because savior too often turns into martyr. This is not the sole responsibility of any community. And the extent to which we bear up this mantle of savior, we are also giving people permission to deny their own agency. And so I I always push back when people use that language. I I appreciate what's intended, but language has power. And when you give someone the credit, you're also giving them the responsibility, which means it's not your your job anymore. And my worry is that by pressing on Black women this acknowledgement, we also press upon our community this obligation that exempts anyone else from their role and their responsibility. And that's always dangerous.
0: That's a really great point. And I, I don't I don't think I've heard that you know, anyone make that uh, point before about it denies looking to black women to save democracy gives others permission to opt out of fighting for this democracy. What a great point. You talked about how, you know, black women are sort of the target of policies that um, aren't working or need to be shored up. We fight so much for that. And it's a benefit not only to black women that you mentioned, but to everyone. The question I have for you is, has democracy failed black
1: Democracy hasn't failed. Those who are responsible for impinging our access to the system have failed. Those who have refused to use their privilege and their power to lift us all have failed. Those who abdicate responsibility have failed. But none of these failures are permanent. And and I think that's the other part of this narrative, that this is not a done deal. I am the progeny of not just two parents who grew up in the civil rights movement. My mother's father was born twenty-five years after the end of slavery. So 25 years, not not a deck not not hundred years, twenty-five. And what that means, what that through line means, is that the failures that led to his parents being enslaved, the the ignominy that denied him the fullness of his intellect and his capacity, the challenges that my great-grandparents faced, all of those pieces make me who I am. All of our stories collectively make us who we are, but they are not the end of the stories. They are chapters. And so I want us to accept the toll of that history, but not accept the consequences of that history. And so language that says it has failed, that puts a period. It is not a period, it is a comma. It is a semicolon. And therefore we must do, and, and I think this goes to your, your earlier question at the very beginning, I do not see the work as a burden because it is how I make my voice heard. No one is obliged to listen. They are obliged to grant me the same access and the same equity and the same equality accorded to everyone else. And when they refuse to do so, we have to hold them accountable. But we also have to hold accountable those we elect to take action who refuse. We have to hold accountable those who remove themselves from the conversation regardless of the reason. And there are sometimes legitimate reasons. Our job is to pull them back in or to carve out a place for them to re-enter. And so I, I refuse to see the period at the end of bad action. I see it as a call to action. And so- Again, my, my recasting of language is important to me. I, I write novels, I write books. And language has always been, for me, just as important as action. Because how we think of things often shapes what degree of energy we will put into it and the imagination we have about what can be done on the other side. So
0: democracy isn't failing, Black women. People who are responsible uh, that we elect to protect uh, democracy They are failing Black women. Did I understand that? When we cast
1: it as this externalized force, we also make it remote and hard to fix. So we know the Supreme Court has weakened access to the Voting Rights Act. They are not elected. They are appointed. But the people who got elected and allowed this to happen are also complicit. But so are the city council members who abdicate responsibility. So are the school board members who remain silent during attacks on our children's right to learn. So are the civic leaders who play footsie with those who would do us harm. And I I want us to think systemically, because when you put all of the responsibility either on a construct or a single job we are giving license to the rest to keep on doing what they do. And that's why I have a very holistic approach. That's why I think about what is the role that the business community has to play? What is the role that the civic community plays? What is the role that the, our elected officials and our public sector plays? But the, we try to come up with trite ways to describe what happens. But when you do that, you are then creating a permission structure for the rest of those who should be doing better to be left out of the responsibility.
0: Okay, I see that. I, I definitely understand the concept and appreciate that concept of holistic sort of approach to um, uh, solving problems. And uh, uh, I would think also that the media is a part uh, a part of that uh, bright construct. Uh, but this is a good segue into... This recent Supreme Court ruling on redistricting, you recently tweeted, you said this, the right to elect representation is a cornerstone of democracy. Yet the choice has to be real, not cynical, manipulation of boundaries and beliefs. There's nothing more frustrating to me than this whole cynical manipulation of redistricting. And I think most people don't really understand that concept. What do you make of this ruling? Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and its impact.
1: So the latest decision, Allen versus Milligan, is the last in a series of four decisions. So Shelby was the decision in 2013 that eviscerated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, essentially allowing states like Georgia and Florida and Ohio to encroach on the Voting Rights Act and essentially eliminate oversight of states who were engaging in voter suppression. So that's the Shelby decision in 2013. Then you have the common cause decision. That's the decision that said that partisan gerrymandering is permitted. So if you draw boundaries, if you draw lines for voting, whether it's at the local, so school board, city council, county commission, state legislature, or congressional level, if you draw those lines and you say it's because of partisanship, you can do it. If you say it's because of race, you can't. But if you say, oh, it's just because of the, my party beliefs. The court has said, "Oh, it's okay. You can do that as long as your state doesn't say no." And what that essentially did was knock out yet another pillar of protection. Then you had the Bronovich decision in twenty one. That's the one that said that Section two of the Voting Rights Act meant that no longer would racial impact be enough. You had to prove intent. You had to have them on record saying that this is what they intended to do. So the fact that it just has the convenient consequence of denying entire races access to voting rights. And this came out of Arizona, where they were denying access to certain voting opportunities to Latino and Native American voters. The court said, well, the fact that it has an effect that's racial doesn't mean it was racist. We've heard that before. So then you enter the the Allen decision, which we were deeply concerned would go ahead and completely knock out Section 2. Because what they were saying was essentially... Uh, Yeah, 27 percent of the population of Alabama is black, but we're going to draw seven seats and only one seat will have a majority black population. So a quarter of the state is comprised of African-Americans, but only one seventh of the state will have the chance to elect a leader who might reflect their needs. And shockingly, the court said, no, that that's actually wrong. And we are going to hold the state of Alabama to reflect the racial composition of their state in the way they draw the lines. The reason this matters is that we know in American politics, race is the strongest predictor of political leanings. Good, bad, or, or indifferent, It is that's the truth. And so what this decision said is that Alabama has to go back and draw its lines again and likely create a second seat, which would change the balance from- Instead, one to six, it would change it to two, five. But the consequences are that this also applies to Georgia and Texas and Florida and Mississippi and all of the state of Mississippi is 38% African American, one district. And so yes. the goal is to say that across the country, states that are subject to majority minority districting have to actually do it right. That is a good thing. Here's the cynicism. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Embedded in that same ruling was the opening for those lines to be drawn using AI, using algorithms to predict where the lines go. The problem with artificial intelligence drawing lines with the use of these algorithms is what's the data going in? And if the data going in is flawed data because of historical undercounts of people of color, namely Black people in the South and people of color writ large, if the data is wrong, they can now say, well, we didn't do it. It wasn't racial animus. The machines did it. And so while we should celebrate the fact that the courts at least acknowledge the legitimacy of majority minority districts. We also need to be very careful about the cynical manipulation of that process that would then allow a census process that undercounts those very communities so that you can say, the machines made me do it.
0: It's crazy, right? They say that with um, data or the software that, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So if you put in the wrong data, the output of that uh, formula will be, um, you know, corrupted and unreliable. So that's, uh, like you said, good news and bad news or worrisome news, we'll we'll see, we'll see that. I noticed you, you're very aspirational. You like, you know, to see what's possible and not just admire the problem. So I'm gonna follow suit with you on, on this. Before we leave this subject altogether, I just have to touch on the organization that you founded, Fair Fight, and its impact on voting rights and redistricting and all of that and making it possible for bringing change in Georgia. What do you say about that? You know, particularly people who give you, like me, uh, a lot of credit uh, for, for that. And I know there are others, lots of others on the ground working on this issue in Georgia. But certainly... Uh, You have been relentless in this fight.
1: Thank you. Well, this goes back to the, the earlier conversation about holistic approach. When it comes to democracy protection, I think there are three things you have to consider. One is the actual protection of access to the right to vote, and that's the work of Fair Fight. Fair Fight pushed back against egregious laws and rules that denied access and denied the true full engagement of voters, especially voters of color. And even though we were not successful in one of our lawsuits, we quietly saw after the secretary of state and the governor touted, oh, the lawsuit didn't go through. And it was because of the Branovich decision I mentioned earlier that changed the rules. They quietly went and fixed more of the things we said were broken because they know that you know it. they were actually doing things that were illegal and with further investigation would probably be held accountable. And so let, let's be clear that the work of Fair Fight has very strongly changed the rules. Now, it hasn't solved every problem because for every rule we get changed, they create new rules to make it more difficult. They shift the, the balance of power. And the reason I push so much for holistic recognition is that we've got to keep watching. Can't If we focus on the thing we're used to seeing, we miss the new things they're doing. And so the fact right. that they there is the ability now for the state to take over entire election boards means you don't have to change the rules. You just be, be the person enforcing the rules. So there's that. But we were just talking about the census. In addition to creating Fair Fight in 2019, I also created Fair Count. Fair Count was the organization that spent more money on the census in 2020 in the state of Georgia than the state of Georgia. So we spent exponentially more money. And for the first time in 40 years, Georgia did not have a statistical undercount of people of color. And so the consequences are that when, to your point about garbage in, garbage out, we we were able to mitigate how poor the data was, which helped preserve access to accurate boundaries. It's not completely done but the work was there. And then the third group I created is called the Southern Economic Advancement Project. When the money was coming from the federal government for COVID, if you live in the South, many Southern states had governors that refused to send the money to the local communities that needed it. So we hired grant writers and provided technical assistance and created an organization of more than 240 groups and scholars across the South, across 12 Southern states, To help communities get access to the resources to which they're entitled. I talk about all of the pieces because I want every Black woman, every other person who cares, to know that even if this isn't your cup of tea, even if you don't wake up every morning thinking about the census the way I do, there's something you can do. There's a point of entry for you. And when we all find our point of entry, when we decide maybe I'm not cut out to be a protester on the front lines but I can show up at this meeting, I can go to this conversation, I can join the Zoom because this is an area of interest for me, that is how you get to U.S. Senators. Because when every person finds their place in the tapestry, then the threads become stronger and our reinforcement becomes more real and sustainable. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air.
0: We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: Hey there, listeners. I'm
0: Brianna, the Magical Producer. In light of the Supreme Court's recent decision ending affirmative action, we want to hear from you. What's been your experience with affirmative action, and how will
1: this decision now affect you or yours? Send us a voice memo. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Well, I tell you, I want to end on your prolific writing career, because I could go on and on about politics. And first of all, congratulations on your latest book, Rogue Justice. You know, what's amazing about you is you're a political leader, an activist, Black woman on a mission, okay, and a New York Times bestselling author. So at the intersection of all of your identities and responsibilities, how does writing allow you to sustain yourself? How does it feed your soul?
1: So writing is an opportunity to not only share ideas and visions and values, it's also a time of contemplation. When you've got to come up with 60,000, 80,000, 120,000 words, you're going to think a lot. (laughs) And so for me, (laughs) it's an opportunity. So my very first nonfiction work, Lead from the Outside, was my opportunity to think about not just leadership, but how do you access power when you've been told it's not yours? And so Leave From the Outside for me was an important responsibility. It was a chance for me to excavate my story, but also to think about, okay, if someone, if a young Black woman were to ask me what to do, and I was getting these questions, here's what I can tell them. Our time is now was my contemplation of This democracy conversation we've had. So if people want to know more, go pick up Our Time Is Now. I talk about all these things ad nauseum. Rogue Justice and its precursor, While Justice Sleeps. I care about the questions we don't ask. And the fact that, and this goes back to your very first question. Black women often have responsibility without authority. We're told we've got to do. Yes. But no one gives us the power, the privilege, or the money to get it done. And so Avery Keene, my heroine, is a young black woman. She's a, a law clerk who has to save the world a couple of times now with responsibility, but without authority. But what is so wonderful in writing her is that she understands that even if people don't give you authority, that doesn't mean they can deny your agency. It doesn't mean you can't figure out a way to get it done anyway. And if there is a metaphor the conversation we've had, and for this wonderful conversation that you lead. I think Avery Keene is that. That responsibility without authority doesn't mean defeat. It just means we got to figure out a way to, as you and I learned when we were growing up, you got to make a way out of no way. And what feeds my soul when I write is that I get to imagine, I get to understand problems. In, in this latest book, Rogue Justice, I talk about AI, I talk about the power grid, I talk about cyber attacks. But I also talk about friendship and building community and taking on obligation and the fact that the consequences may sometimes seem harsh, but they are never final.
0: Well, this book is uh, quite the thriller. I think we need to call Shonda Rhimes. Okay, she needs to do a whole series, a movie or something around this. It's got it all. Thank you so much for all that you do, uh, for birthing so much from the book's to the organizations that you founded and the inspiration that you give to all of us. And, um, and thank you most importantly for this time.
1: Well, I will just say, Cheryl, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for holding these conversations and for creating space for more than just the, the bumper sticker solutions. We've got a lot of work to do. And I think every one of your listeners has a role to play. And I appreciate you creating the space for them to find themselves somewhere in this conversation and find something to do and I encourage all of us to get to work. Let's get it done.
0: And that's a wrap for our bonus episode on Black Women Saving Democracy with leader Stacey Abrams. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate us on Apple Podcasts and tune in every Friday for your dose of When Magic Happens. And follow us on Instagram at when Magic Happens Podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter, the perfect companion to this podcast. Join our email community at wbez.org backslash newsletters. The sincerest of thanks to our guest, the trailblazing leader, Stacey Abrams, for joining us today. You can find her on Twitter at Stacey Abrams or on her website, StaceyAbrams.com. And you can find more about her organization, Fair Fight, at FairFight.com. You can find me, Cheryl Jackson, on socials at Cheryl Jackson. That's Cheryl with an E. And we want to hear from you, our magical listeners. Our email address is magic at WBEZ.org. Send us anything. We want to hear from you. When Magic Happens is a production of WBEZ Chicago. Our truly magical producer is Brianna Garrett. Elizabeth Cambridge is our associate producer. Brendan Benazek is our executive producer. Tracy Brown is chief content officer. Editing by Justin Bull. Engineering by Deshaun Smith. See y'all next week.